As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, underline that one if you don't mind, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua and the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, that's why I had you underline that, the men of Gibeon were of the Hivite clan or tribe, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Say that again. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Last week, we saw Israel face its first and in fact, its only defeat during the conquest under Joshua, which was at the city of Ai, which was a small city, because a man named Achan, Achan, had taken things out of Jericho to keep for himself. And because of his sinful greed, God allowed the people to be defeated. Now, when they found out what had happened, Achan was executed, and all of his things he had stolen were destroyed. And so the people went back and won the battle at Ai. But in these verses, we see a change of attitude in the heart of the Canaanite people. Up to this point, the Canaanites had exclusively been terrified of the Israelites. As Rahab said, their hearts had become like water. And every city was holed up in their villages, scared to death. But now we see them forming a coalition of kings to gather together and attack the Hebrews. Why the switch? It could be, and I think it's very likely, the fact that they had seen that the Hebrews were vulnerable that they weren't invincible. Yes, they had heard of the plagues of Egypt and the Red Sea and the manna and the parting of the Jordan and the fall of Jericho, but now they've lost. They can be beaten. Do you remember from Rocky IV when Rocky is fighting Drago? A bunch of heads went up. That was great. He's like, oh, I'm listening now. And uh, as the fight goes on, he punches him and he begins to bleed. And uh, his, his trainer says, He's not a machine, he's a man. You cut him, you hurt him, right? So now get out there and get him. And those movies get you so revved up and riled, right? Well, it's the same idea here. They're just human. They can be hurt. They can be beaten. So let's go get them. 
And now, rather than taking it one city at a time, they're going to have to fight all of them at once. And we'll see what happens in the next chapter with that. However, we have these Gibeonites. This seems to be a, a clan, an ethnic group within the larger tribe of the Hivites. We're going to see that they have four cities, one of which was called Gibeon, but there seemed to have been a, a collection of cities here. And we know that when they came to Gilgal, they were only three days away. So they were next. So Jericho was first, then I, and at least as far as the story, we don't know exactly where we are in the chronology, but Gibeon was next. So even if a coalition is coming together, Gibeon is not going to be able to be saved in time. So what's going to happen? They try a new tactic. Now you all know, the Lord had told them in no uncertain terms that every Canaanite was to be exterminated. They were the sword of God. As we've already seen, the Lord is like, this is not just me giving you land because I like you. You are executing my wrath and my judgment upon these people after more than five centuries it amounted to of patience. And so, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 2, among other places, Moses had told them, when the Lord your God gives them, and this comes after a long list of tribes in verse 1 that includes the Hivites. So when the Lord gives the Hivites over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Haram, remember. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. They act, it says, with cunning. They're going to trick them to deceive Joshua at Gilgal by pretending to be foreigners. Now, Deuteronomy 29, 11, the Lord mentioned that there would be foreigners that they did not have to drive out and, and to execute the ban, the haram upon them, but they could instead uh, subjugate them, which is not great, but it's better than being exterminated, certainly. So somehow the Gibeonites knew about this. I'm sure they had spies. We just read about them announcing the law to the whole land. And some people believe that's out of sequence in the story. That doesn't really make a difference if it is. But they're back at Gilgal. And they come and they say, hey, make a treaty with us. We came from a far off country. And verse 14 gives us their fatal mistake where it says the Israelites and the rulers of the kingdom did not ask counsel from the Lord, which is exactly what they had failed to do last time. Jericho had that great moment where he's, he's pondering what they're going to do with this city and the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua. Then they went to Ai and they just said, hey, we don't need the whole army, let's just go. And they lost. And then God told them again what their battle plan was to be. Well, now once again, they're faced with a situation, but they did not inquire of the Lord. And now Israel has made a treaty with a Canaanite nation, pretending to be far off. They're just over the next hill dressing up like they've been traveling a long ways, looking all raggedy, and they fell for it. Now, you might say, well, what about Rahab? Rahab was invited into the covenant people. In fact, she was placed into the messianic line, and she said something very similar. We've heard of your God, and we want to serve your God. This is different. If these people had come in sackcloth and ashes and said, we humble ourselves before you and before your God. Our city is yours. It's right over there. Do what you want with it. That would have been a very different situation. The Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked, the word says, but that the wicked turn from his evil and repent. This is why uh, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He said, what if they repent? I want you to blow them up, God. But they didn't do that. They chose to lie. And the Bible says that everyone who loves and practices a lie, the Lord hates. 
Israel is never going to lose another battle under Joshua because they are now prepared for the frontal assault. They're ready for somebody coming at them, meeting them eye to eye, lined up on a battlefield. However, as we see tonight, they were not prepared for subterfuge. They were not prepared for lies. They were not prepared for manipulation. Likewise, we as Christians and we as the big church are often prepared for assaults on the church. But we're not perhaps prepared so much for infiltration. We're on the lookout for people that want to say things like Christianity should be made illegal. But when somebody's going to come at a sidewind and try to infiltrate and manipulate and slowly turn the rudder, it's much easier to fall for that. We look to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and you should have this verse memorized and painted on your wall and cross-stitched on a pillow because it is so important, especially in the day in which we live. Paul said to the Colossians, See to it that no one takes you captive. How is it going to take me captive? By philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul's concern for the Colossians and therefore for the rest of us was that we would be enamored with worldly philosophies. We'd be so proud of our own traditions. We'd allow them to trump Christ. We'd want to be like everybody else and that we would begin to think like the world and not according to Christ. We're warned against world philosophies, that Jesus is to be our source of truth and strength, that we are to remain childlike, like the blind man who was healed, who says, whether he is bad, I do not know, but one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. But the church has had to constantly make war and defend against infiltration because of failures to seek the Lord about the philosophies that we are imbibing. And I don't specifically mean this church individually, but I'm talking about the church as a whole, with a capital C, with the American church, the worldwide church, whatever you want to call it. This has been the story, unfortunately, of church history, of infiltration from false teachers, and then mercifully the work of godly men to push them out. But let's take a look at our own history here. In the 1800s, the 19th century, you had something come out of Germany called the Higher Criticism. This was the belief that the scripture needed to be dissected and taken apart, that we needed to find where the so-called seams were in the Bible. It came up with the hypothesis that the New Testament and Old Testament had evolved over time, that it had been compiled over hundreds of years, and that the Gospels couldn't have been written the way they were written. Therefore, the doctrine of the church is completely subjective and can therefore be changed. And far too many churches and seminaries took that seriously. And saying things along the lines of, well, I, I still believe in Jesus, but they, they do have an awful lot of things to teach us. And even people that stood firm on the faith allowed these tools to be brought into their churches and their Bible colleges so that the next generation was trained up to venerate this thing. You could move on to in the early 20th century and continuing until now, and as this has been on my brain since the podcast we've been recording, but when evolution made its inroads into the church, and people began to debate, is this a salvation issue or isn't it? Well, it's not really, but there were godly men that were standing up and saying, if you let this fox in the hen house, it's going to start to kill the chickens. And people said, you just hate science, you just hate Jesus, whatever. 
Well, here we are reaping the fruits of that decades and decades later. Where now people are walking around saying things like, why does life even matter? Life doesn't mean anything. Why are the kids today so pessimistic and anxious? Well, if you've been taught your whole life that you're dust from dust, you've come from nowhere and you're going nowhere, that's the kind of people you produce. What about the seeker-friendly movement in the 80s and 90s? I always found that ironic that men that, I, I, they're believers and brothers, but you know, the movement pushed by Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and other guys like that, uh, they were saying, we want to have a seeker-friendly church. I always thought that was funny because there's a verse in the Bible that says, there is none who seeks after God. No, not one. Now, I get the point. I'm not trying to be a jerk here. But, but that, in my opinion, did inestimable damage to the church. People were teaching that you need to structure your church in such a way that people will come in and like it and stick around. This was very, you know, it could be innocuous. In some ways, I was like, listen, you know, the kids today are living in a completely different world than you. You need to find a way to speak to them. Don't just sit there and yell at them. Okay, that part's great. Or how about this church model you've lifted out of, let's say, the Old South. Maybe it's not going to work in the Pacific Northwest. You need to contextualize like you would if you were a missionary. But what it went to is nobody wants to talk about the blood of Jesus. Stop talking about it. People don't want to be told they're sinners, according to our market research, so don't talk about that. People don't want to hear these high-minded doctrinal concepts. They just want to hear good, feel-good messages to send them home for the week. And as myself, as both a, a teenager and as a youth ministry pastor, I saw how the teenagers in our, our city, not in my youth group, thankfully, I don't boast in that, I'm just saying the Lord preserved us, but how they were intentionally not being discipled, specifically not taught the word of God because they don't want to hear it. Well, that didn't bear very good fruit, did it? But most recently, we've been bombarded by this postmodern mind virus that has affected the American church, which is an ongoing fight. Now, we're going to talk about this tonight, and some of you are going to feel like I talk about this too much. Sometimes I feel the same way. Some of you are going to feel like, well, it's about time he brought this up. He doesn't talk about it enough. So maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. But when I read this passage, I could not think of a more fitting application for what we'll call a Gibeonite deception that came asking for mercy and for help to bring in something dangerous into the people of God. I'm less interested in describing what we're going through and how to fix this than analyzing how it came about and look at how to prevent the next one. And I don't mind telling you, I have some tough things to say tonight. I've thought about them very carefully. I've put the words together in a way that I feel I can stand on. But we have to take a look at this. Because even though things seem to be getting better, it's not going to be the last time that the church faces a wave like this. The church was warned about postmodernism for a long time, especially by guys like D.A. Carson, theologians, apologists in the church, identifying what was going on, especially in the universities at the time. This belief that, you know, there's really no such thing as truth, that whole thing that was going on. And we mocked it, rightfully so. It's a risible ideology. But like, this is so crazy. Who could ever believe that? But because it was up on this level of this high stratum of academia, it didn't really affect anybody's lives. So people were aware of it and aware and waiting for that frontal assault. But something changed. What is this postmodernism? This is a philosophy. It's a movement that denies the existence of objective truth. 
The idea that there is anything that is true is a nonsense statement because nobody is able to tell what is true because you are only able to tell through your eyes and your ears and how do you, you know you're not biased and you're not corrupt and how do you know you're even seeing it at all? It actually grew out of a literary movement. The idea that we can't know what words mean. We can only know what this guy meant by those words. And, and to do that, we need to look at his background. We need to look at what, where he came from. And it, you could even come to conclusions that what he wrote down is the opposite of what he meant because we have deconstructed what he said and we've been able to evaluate it properly. Prioritizes perspective. This is where you get things like my truth, why do we say that? Because it comes from a philosophy that doesn't believe in the truth. That there is no such thing as truth. I've said this before. This is why when you see people trying to get a straight answer out of the people that believe this stuff, they get angry. And people don't understand. This seems so crazy. It seems so weird. These people are stupid. It's not that they're stupid. It's that they're coming from an entirely different starting point than you. You saying something like, well, what is the truth? Doesn't mean anything to them. They only see that as you trying to assert your perspective, because that is all that there is, on them. And that's why they react so violently. This is a movement that therefore defines every structure and organization in the world as corrupt. Because how can you say that this was made the right way? How can you say that this was built on sound morals? How can you say this was built for human flourishing if you don't even know what those things are? The only things you have are your opinion about what those things are. Therefore, everything is inherently corrupt and must be taken apart. This is what is called deconstruction. The church was ready for the frontal assault. We were ready for somebody to stand up on a, at a conference somewhere and say, the church ought to embrace postmodernism. I'm ready. I'm cocked and loaded, buddy. I'm ready to go if that day comes. It didn't. It didn't come that way. It came like the Gibeonites came. It came to the church in a moment of pain, in a moment of sorrow, asking for mercy and asking for help. And this is where things might get a little bit tense, but we have to be able to analyze this as Christians. When George Floyd died, and everybody saw that heartbreaking video of some guy choking on camera. Nobody wants to watch that. Nobody wants to see that. Everybody is looking at that and saying, what happened? How can something like this happen? And that led, of course, to a, a wider movement. And you might have opinions about many issues, of many areas of this. I'm only describing what I see that happened philosophically in the United States of America and especially in the American church. Pastors and Christians everywhere who had a very soft conscience on matters of race and compassion and justice, well, what do we do to stop this? And there were a bunch of people with ready-made answers on what you've got to do to stand against this kind of thing. And the answer was to embrace a popularized version of postmodernism called, in various terms, intersectionality, critical theory, anti-racism, or more broadly, the term that we use today, wokeness. Where does that term come from, by the way? It's the idea that you are asleep like the matrix. You think everything is the way it is. You've got to wake up and realize that nothing is what you think it is, and it's all corrupt. So this postmodernism that the church had said we're never going to embrace this, was packaged in a way that was accessible to the average person, presented in this context where everybody was heartbroken and wondering what can we do to meet this need, and the church fell for it out of compassion, a misplaced mercy like what Joshua did with these Gibeonites. 
And the church began to imbibe ideas of personal truth, of systemic corruption, embarking upon the need to deconstruct their faith, to deconstruct their identity, to deconstruct the scriptures. And all these terms began to pop up. And if you knew what you were looking at, you began to panic and say, where did this come? What are we talking about deconstruction for? And people would point you not to the philosophers that were writing the giant books that nobody could read, but to the paperback you could buy at any corner grocery store. If the church had taken the time to evaluate these things by the word of God, rather than just embracing it in the moment, we would have destroyed it rather than made a covenant with it. If we had seen that the entirety of this philosophy is based on the idea that every text and every truth claim is suspicious and realize that we're standing on a book given to us by a truthful God, we might have been a little suspicious about it. We might have remembered what the word of God says about governmental structures. That is the Lord who raises up and tears down rulers. And God gives them the sword so that they can enforce righteousness. We might have realized that the people that were pushing these things were also telling us, you don't need a savior. Those who did know this were pushed to the side. And I know this because I was one of those people. And again, I'm not bragging here. This was something that I was familiar with. I had spoken to... I remember once in particular a pastor's group back in Virginia and they said, Tyler, you're a millennial. I love questions that begin that way, but <laughs> Tyler, you're a millennial. What's the next thing on the horizon we should look out for? And this is before all that went down. This might have even been before uh, Trump's election, but when all this stuff really started to pick up, you know, but I said, guys, the next thing is coming is there's these people that they don't believe in male or female. They believe that there's no such thing as truth. They believe that, uh, you know, all, all the things we've seen that race needs to be a more conscious thing and that anybody who's, who's white or privileged needs to be set to the side and it's hyper-feminism and all this. And I was, I was politely laughed at. Things like, who would believe something that ridiculous? But some of those men, I know for a fact, that were in that meeting, were in their pulpits preaching these tenets after all these things went down. Because they're raging postmodernists in secret? No, because they had a heart of compassion and they were told by somebody that this is how you show the proper kind of compassion and love to those that are being oppressed. And they said, okay, I'm just going to do that. And because it rhymed with certain things in scripture, using words like love and words like justice and words like inclusion that are biblical terms but are in, defined entirely differently, they went for it. And now the fox is in the hen house. Friends, you must train yourself to think according to God's word. They did not seek the word of the Lord, that says in this passage. And neither did the church when all this was going on. They did not seek the, the word. They relied on the principles they thought that they knew already and went after something that looked familiar rather than seeking the word and being a Berean. You've got to walk according to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and not through a cultural trend in any direction. It came from the far left this time. It's not always come from there. Who knows where it's going to come from next time? As I said during these days, and I remember being nervous to talk about this because I didn't know what kind of reaction I was going to get. We don't need the world to teach us love. We have Jesus for that. 
and the way that Jesus talks about love and mercy and justice and all those things is different from the way everybody in the world is going to define it. And we've got to learn to be okay with that and take a firm stand on that because there are always Gibeonites trying to infiltrate the Lord's church. Let's move on to verse 16 and see what happened. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. So they were not far at all. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Be'erot, and Kiriat Yairim. You'll see some of these cities come up later in your Bible, especially that last one. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. Man, we haven't seen that since the wilderness. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Israel arrives at the Gibeonite cities only to learn that they had made a treaty with Canaanites. They had made, in fact, the word is berit. They had made a covenant with Canaanites. And the congregation was furious with the leaders. And you can't blame them this time. They had just lost their first soldiers in battle for something just like this. Y'all should have known better. And I'm sure once the story was told, that you've got to be kidding me. But they couldn't attack them because they had made a covenant in the name of the Lord and they were not about to violate it. Rather than be conquered, they were enslaved. Made serfs would be a better term here. That they were to be a permanent underclass in the land of Israel to serve the Hebrews. We're going to see that they're going to be specifically assigned to look after the menial tasks of the sanctuary. Because they had failed to seek the Lord, they had to wake up and discover what they had done. It's just like Samson. Remember Samson when he finally told Delilah after all her nagging of what the secret of his strength was? And he woke up and she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He says, I'm going to break out and knock them dead like I always do. And it says he did not know that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And he woke up and he was as weak as any man. His head was shorn and he was blinded and humiliated. Jacob, similar thing. When he went into what he thought was his wife, Rachel, and was in fact his wife, Leah. It's a similar thing to what happens here in, in Joshua. They thought they were moving on to another conquest. They, they believed again that they were right in line with what God had asked them to do. And once again, they had failed to seek the Lord. The same thing happened to the American church and in fact is happening to the American church. Mercifully, people are waking up to this nonsense and we're starting to see how deep this hole goes. But the horror of what happened is real. Because the Trojan horse of the racial issue brought in similar ideas, and in fact identical ideas, just applied different places, to the idea of gender and sex. What is male or female? You don't know. You're you're talking from a place of privilege. And I think there are a lot of people that felt really silly 
when they realized that these terms they had been talking about and even preaching from the pulpit, now it comes to an issue that they know what the Bible says and they're caught with their own words. That marriage is a patriarchal institution. In fact, all of society is a patriarchal institution. And what the Bible teaches about male and female and husbands and wives and pastors is in fact oppressive and must be deconstructed. For religion, going out and saying, well, we know what the Bible says, but that's only ever been interpreted by people with a Western bias. So who knows what doctrines are true? And to begin to completely dismantle the foundation of the church. Issues ranging, people are seeing, from, from health. People are saying things like, if you feel like you, you're, you're disabled, even though your body isn't disabled, you should be allowed to disable yourself. That, oh yeah, you haven't heard that one? That's real. There are doctors that will do that to you. People that say things like, you, it doesn't matter what you look like or what the doctor says or how heavy you are, you're healthy at any size. People that go to the television and begin to say what can and can't be put out there. And that if we're not seeing some sort of homosexual propaganda, that it's somehow oppressive. All the way down to things like math is racist, science is oppressive, exploring the heteronormativity of physics. And we go, what does this have to do with anything? It's postmodernism. This is this ridiculous idea that we were warned about, but that we invited in. The very issue that we swore we would fight against has been preached from the same pulpits. Pastors who held conferences and seminars on postmodernism find themselves preaching what amounts to liberation theology from the same pulpit because they felt bad about something that happened on TV and went somewhere other than the Bible to figure out what to do about it. 2 Peter chapter 2, there's a warning. Peter's telling the story of the nation of Israel and begins to apply it to the church. He says, but false teachers, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Is that not exactly what has happened in our country and in our society? Bringing in destructive heresies secretly, denying the master who bought them. Saying things like, we've got to completely reevaluate the story of Jesus because it's problematic to have one man dying for the whole world. That implies that there's something wrong with you, that there's some sort of sin inside of you, and that's problematic, and we can't have that either. And many will follow their sensuality, and many did. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and it has been. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, and that's happened too. Call it whatever you want, the common term is woke, is, is not just a new way to look at politics. It is a total worldview exchange, ravaging the church. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing to be learned from it. Anything that you think you could learn from it is probably something you should have learned from the scriptures already. Maybe if you spent 40 hours a week looking at that instead of watching videos online, you would have learned it by now. But here's the thing. I'm, like I said, I'm not really going to blast that and how, what we're going to do about it. I think if you're at this church, you understand this point. 
Here's what I'm concerned about. If we seek to make a correction here, we cannot make such a correction that will leave us open to the same mistake the next time another Gibeonite shows up. I have said, I don't have a word from the Lord, I don't think here, but I, I think it's pretty clear. Because this assault on the church has come from the farthest left wing possible, I think it only rational that the next time a Gibeonite shows up, they're going to be coming from the right side. And that, for most of you in this room, is something that you might not be as prepared to deal with. You've got to watch out for that. How do you watch out? You get your thinking, like Paul told us in Colossians 2, according to Christ. To follow Jesus is to have an entirely new perspective. To completely change every area of your life. Consider Saul of Tarsus. Had everything in his life changed. Down to his name was changed when he started following Jesus. He was so educated. He was so smart. He knew so much. He was well connected. He was giving, given authority and responsibility. But when he met Jesus, he went into the desert for three years because he said, I've got some stuff to think about. Because I don't know anything. That's the kind of attitude a Christian needs to have. I've got to have my whole life completely upended. When Jesus was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it says many departed and no longer followed after him that day. Because the implications that Jesus had been saying was, being an Israelite is not enough to save you. And he turned to the 12 and he said, are you going to go away too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Peter's like, I might not get all of that, but it's coming from you. And I'm ready to accept it. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. That every area of life, every philosophy, every worldly tradition, everything that you have developed over time has got to be placed on the altar. And if it burns up, then it's gone. And if it's purified, then it'll be handed back to you to be used for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say a strong statement now, but I believe this. If our white Christian brothers had learned to accept their forgiveness in Christ... If our black Christian brothers had learned to give forgiveness as they have learned from Christ, and if we had all learned love as the Bible defines it, not from men who make their money by exploiting your ignorance of the scriptures, all of this could have been avoided. And the church would have been a rock standing in the middle of a tumultuous sea and say, we know you don't know what to think, but Jesus does. Instead, most of the church was swept right along with this because there were matters of the heart, culturally and personally, that had not been handed over to Jesus. Now, some of y'all hearing this, you're a little too excited that I'm blasting this stuff. Some of y'all are probably a little too mad that I'm talking about this in such a way. You've probably got faces and names flashing through your head. But I've got to speak when we see these things. It's not a restoration of Western values that we need. It is a restoration of faith in Jesus Christ. And those are not the same thing. They never have been the same thing. I don't understand. I mean, I suppose I do. I don't want to speak too strongly here. It's a, it's a loaded topic and I get that. But... You do realize that even throughout Western society's history, the people of God have been harried and hounded and persecuted. 
They were chased across the ocean to try and make a life in the wilderness because they were being prevented from serving Jesus in Western culture. So they said, we'll go build a new one. And then all that followed them over here. And even throughout our history as a, as a country, when the church has stood up and spoken boldly on moral issues, most of the culture has turned around and said, would you shut up? So this whole idea that that's what we need, just because it's better than what we have, that's not good enough. What did Proverbs say? This is the most, one of the most popular verses in the Bible, and it ought to be. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I don't care what you think you understand. I don't care what you think you know. I don't care if you think I've got a, a less than nuanced approach to my lesson here tonight. I don't care if you've read more books about it than I have. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, from the way you rise up in the morning to going to bed at night, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I don't want to hear this nonsense about, well, we've got to have a coalition with this wicked group and this wicked group because then the way forward will be clear. It's not up to you to make the way straight. It's God's job to do that. It's your job to stand on the truth and die on it if need be. He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Well, I've got this whole thing figured out. Be not wise. You know, the wisest man in the world said, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think you've got it all figured out because you don't. And don't follow anybody who thinks they've got it all figured out either. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord. I'm afraid of being called sexist. I'm afraid of being called racist. I'm afraid of what this person might say. Fine, but I fear the Lord more. And I will not take a stand on something that either I don't fully understand or that the Bible has not taught me. If you didn't learn it from Jesus, leave it alone. For Solomon said it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Guys, we must not give away our loyalty so cheaply, our agreement so easily. When somebody says, we want the same thing you do, that might be fine, but we're not about to go about it your way. Troubles me. This has not been a large push, but I have seen it. Of people seemingly testing the waters of the idea that, well, you know, Christians and Muslims really agree on a lot of the same moral issues, and we both want to push back against wokeness. I mean, maybe we ought to... No! They're idolaters! They deny the sonship of our Lord Jesus Christ! They say that he didn't die for our sins. I don't care if we're fighting for the same thing. You fight over there. I'm not standing with you. And it's not just that group, but any group. Well, if we don't involve homosexuality in the team, then it'll be smaller. Fine, then the Lord will give us victory with 300, maybe with 36,000. It's too many. And the Lord needs you to thin the ranks out a little bit so that he gets the glory, not the wisdom of some political strategist. Don't give away your loyalty cheaply. Jesus bought that with his blood. And unless somebody can offer you something that's worth more than that, you've got to say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. If I can give you one lesson on how to work on this, stop propagandizing yourself every day. Sitting there imbibing things that of themselves might not be sinful, 
But what begins to happen is you become like one of the children that Nehemiah found in the land of the returned exiles. They said they spoke half the language of Israel and half the language of Ashdod. They were speaking half Philistine. And I think that's a lot of our problem is, yes, we want to stand with Christ, but half of what comes out of our mouth is Philistine. Stop it. Delight yourself in the Lord. Do you remember what Joshua started to do when he was serving Moses? Moses pitched the tent outside the camp and the Shekinah glory of God would move when Moses would go there and Moses would speak to God face to face and it says Joshua did not depart from the tent. Have you left the tent? How much of a priority for you is your daily time with the Lord? It is amazing how much of your Christian life goes back to your daily quiet time. If you're not taking the time to find the Lord on your own in the morning, the rest of the day is not going to go right. And you do that two days in a row, you got trouble. You do it two weeks in a row, then you're depressed. You do it a few years in a row, and you're wandering. Now, I believe that this deception, right, the term is so cringe, but I'm just going to use it, that, that whole woke thing, it's dying. And I'm happy for that. But there's going to be another one. There's going to be more Gibeonites that show up. And you might be more sympathetic to this one. Until we seek God's word, we're going to be susceptible. Well, how is Joshua going to handle this? Verse 22 to the end. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us? Saying, We are very far from you. When you dwell among us. Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Then answer, they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Side note, fear, stress, anxiety are not good excuses to sin. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. It looks like they were spitting mad and ready to stone these people. But they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So Joshua confronts the Gibeonites who just throw themselves on his mercy. Partly, I think, because they knew they were safe now. They made a covenant in the name of the Lord. That's not something you break lightly. The cities of Gibeon would become Benjamite cities. The city Gibeon itself would be given to the Levites as a Levite city, and they would serve in the sanctuary. They would be the, the petty functionaries of the sanctuary, drawing water, cutting wood. Even unto the days of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah has the people building the wall, there are Gibeonites that are identified that had come back from exile with the people of God, which, that's a pretty optimistic ending to this story, actually. You would think that, Hey, we've been exiled with you, but as far as we're concerned, we just got liberated, so we're never going back. But some of them had chosen to worship and serve the Lord, and were not so concerned about their station among the people of God, as long as they could be with him. Later on, Saul would try to exterminate the Gibeonites. Probably thought he was being righteous. Gonna get rid of Joshua didn't finish the job. I'll finish the job. Well, 2 Samuel 21 tells us God sent a famine upon the land because of what Saul had done. The Lord's like, you made a covenant in my name. Don't break it. And this was hundreds of years later. God cares about your agreements. You know that, don't you? The Bible says it is better not to swear than to swear falsely. Because they had failed to seek God's will, 
they had signed over part of their promised land to the Canaanites. Their destiny was permanently damaged because of what they had done. Once you've made the deal with the devil, it is very, very hard to get out of the contract. Once you let them in, it's very hard to get them out. And I mean, look at what has been done to Christianity in these years. Entire denominations have been devoured by this stuff. Look at the Methodist church. It's done. There are those that are holding faithful, and I'm glad for that. The Lord always has a remnant. I imagine, like they would say to, to Rehoboam, is like, because of your father David and Solomon, I'll leave you a remnant. I bet he's saying to these guys, hey, because of your fathers Whitfield and Wesley, I'll leave you a remnant. But that, den- that denomination is dead. Pray for them. Seminaries, gone. You know, Harvard and Princeton were established in the early days of the, of the Republic to train pastors. The first one to bring all this stuff into Harvard, by the way, all of the higher criticism and all that, and to allow different perspectives to be taught was Woodrow Wilson, by the way. And entire Christian establishments have been gutted. Go to Christianity Today's website sometime. See what you find there. One of their headline articles for this last issue was, In Search of a Non-Toxic Male Sexuality. You didn't learn that from Christ. You didn't get that from Scripture. Those aren't even biblical words. You're speaking the language of the Philistines, but you're trying to dress up like Jesus. Parachurch Ministries, InterVarsity Press has been ravaged by this stuff. Even some very prominent seminaries are just starting to drift that way. Even places like Wheaton, who put out an apology for sending Jim Elliott to preach to South America because that's colonialism and we don't want to support colonialism. But more than that, I mean, institutions are one thing, but how many souls have been lost once they stopped believing in their need for a savior? Have you met many people who deconstructed their faith and then came back to it? The track record of that whole thing is littered with car crash Christianity. Which is why those that are say we should encourage people to examine their faith and encourage themselves to deconstruct. Why would you do that? How about you call people to faith? I don't care what you were learned in school. Jesus Christ is Lord. Bow the knee. Well, I don't want to teach people that. Well, that's what Jesus is going to say at the end of time if you don't tell them. How many have been lost? I have dear, beloved friends that have been, their souls were eaten alive by this. The locusts have devoured their soul. And I believe some of these things were needed. Some of these these things needed to expose who some of these people really were. But much of it is going to be a loss of reward for our beloved United States when we stand in glory. Things that we should have preserved, that we should have looked out for. And the Lord goes, I brought you through it, but not unscarred. John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. You can know whether something was true or of the Lord or of the devil by what happens to God's people. And that is exactly what has happened. Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Is the church thriving where this stuff has been embraced? Is the church just overflowing with evangelism and new converts? No. It's people saying we don't really need the church after all. Now, eventually, the Gibeonites, they became assimilated to Israelite culture. And we'll get over this. I know sometimes you can, you can get spooked into thinking that this is, this is your life from now on. We'll get past this. 
Bible says, do not fret yourself because of evildoers. I've seen a man spreading like a green laurel tree and then I turned away and looked back and he was gone. But what do we do for the next one? We've got to start by revising our opinions according to the word of God. Not the culture. I don't care which culture. The word of God. No one gets to tell you the appropriate parameters of your thought other than the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. You can't think that. The Bible says that. Well, you can't think that. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to disagree with you. Well, if you believe that, then that means you're this. Why do you care about the judgment of other people? I've never seen the church so aware and so cautious about how they're talked about by other people. Jesus said they're going to revile you. They're going to despise you. And beware when all men speak well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. No one tells you the parameters of your thought. Not right-wing ideology, not left-wing ideology, or any other strange thing that comes in like a lightning bolt like this did. I don't want to get back to normal. Normal wasn't good either. We've got to move forward into something that the Lord can be proud of. And if it doesn't start in God's church, it's not going anywhere. Or what the Lord will do is he'll send revival to a group of people that never knew Jesus and it'll put us all to shame. I don't want that to happen. God is able to restore what has been lost if we're willing to cut off what is sinful and repent of it. There's going to be another Gibeonite deception and I don't know what it is. But if we are not walking close to Christ will be fooled by it. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a pretty straightforward, simple message tonight. What's saying, we fell for the last one, don't fall for the next one. And hopefully some of you didn't in here. But my concern is that people are getting wise to what this postmodern stuff is, not because of their study of the scripture and listening to their pastors, but because somebody on their favorite political podcast told them about it. We learned very quickly what some people thought of their pastors when all this stuff came, came about. Look what Paul said to Timothy. He said, but understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And we must admit the fact that this was a movement where the church was not following its men, it was following its women. Because the weak women were captured and led the way. Always learning, verse 7, and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Ever meet that person? Well, I'm investigating it. I'm thinking about it. I'm trying to learn. How long does it take? How long does it take? 
Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, those were Pharaoh's magicians. So these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I think we're coming to the end of that cycle that he just described. We are living in the last days. We get excited about that, but you've got to remember what that means for right now, not just for the future after the rapture, but now. That means that there will be times of deception and difficulty. It's everywhere. And you've got to trust that when someone comes to you with a very persuasive ideology claiming to fill in the gaps that God somehow forgot to fill, that you've got to say, no. The Bible teaches that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And if I didn't learn it from Jesus, I don't need to learn it. They'll call us narrow-minded. Fine, the road is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. He said to strive to enter by the narrow gate. And you've got to trust that in the end, the Lord will vindicate you. Christians, y'all, we have to be men out of time. Meaning, we don't really fit. We don't fit in the 21st century. We don't fit in 2023, man. We don't fit. We didn't fit in the, in the early church, in the Roman Empire. We didn't fit in the Jesus movement. We don't fit now. You've got to be okay with that. I remember when, at least when I was a kid, the, the cry of the church from that, that song we all love, what will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? Are you okay being a Jesus freak? I would rather be known as a Jesus freak than he's a reasonable guy. You can talk. He's pretty open-minded. And I'm not. I'm not. Well, aren't you a seeker of truth? Yeah, I'm also a founder of truth because I found it. I don't care if my grammar's right. You know what I mean. Men out of time. That when they put the Christian on the panel of philosophers, they're all able to engage with the latest ideas and the latest thoughts. And there's the Christian who, like Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We don't adhere to any other philosophy than Jesus Christ. This will make you strange, but that is what you must be. They didn't like Jesus. They shouldn't like you. And it's what the world desperately needs. The world is reeling from that first gulp of postmodernism that it got. And as I said, in, in the days when this was going on, I said, there's going to be a cultural vomit where we're just going to get rid of all this stuff. And the danger is that we'll start looking around for something else to fill the gap, and we might pick up something even worse. Might say, what could be worse than this? The devil is crafty and wicked, and he hates you, and he hates people. You've got to be ready to stand there with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you are a sinner, but Jesus, the Son of God, came down to earth, became a man, died on the cross for your sins, rose again on the third day, and now he offers you salvation by grace through faith. And the other option is eternity in hell, alone, apart from God, in eternal, perpetual, conscious torment. Shore up your faith through the knowledge of the word and through persistent prayer. You might not know the exact answer to the latest philosophy. Sometimes it's because they're asking bad questions. You can't even answer me. Well, you're asking really weird questions. But you, as long as you know what the word has to say about that, you jump right in and you say, this is what God says. And through persistent prayer, 
God, protect me. I acknowledge that I'm weak. I acknowledge that I'm a fool. I acknowledge that if my blood gets boiling or if my heart starts to break, I'll believe anything. I need your help, Jesus. He'll give it to you so that the next time the Gibeonites show up, you'll draw your sword rather than drawing up a contract. Contract. 